But welcome to Genesis. My name is Josh. I'm the students and groups pastor here at Genesis. And uh, when you came in, you were given a worship program. And in the worship program are some really important things we want to kind of make you aware of. Uh, the first is intro to Genesis. Uh, intro to Genesis is an event that we do periodically just to kind of explain who we are, what's going on, and how you might be able to get involved. Uh, it'll be next Sunday. Uh, you can uh, find out more information about where and when exactly in your worship program and also let us know if you plan on coming. Uh, this is for new people, and here's the deal. You get to define that. You're new if this is your first Sunday. You're new if you've never been to an intro to Genesis before. You're new if you've been before, you just want to see if we've updated anything. You're new, whatever. Like You get to define that. You go to intro to Genesis, check it out. Uh, the other thing in the worship program that's great and great news to, is the baptisms that we're going to be having on October 14th. Uh, baptism is a way that we celebrate life change, that we celebrate people following Christ, maybe for the first time. And we do that in kind of a big celebratory way, so we need to have some heads up, because you are going to get a shirt if you get baptized. That's right. We go all out for you. But we celebrate, uh, we celebrate baptism, and we want to know. And so you can sign up online on our website, or let us know through the worship program. The third thing in the worship program that's great big news is we have a, a trip to Haiti coming up through Nehemiah Vision Ministries. Uh, just outside of Port-au-Prince, we've partnered with them for some time now and sent several trips down there. we got another one coming up, so, so you need to know about that. Uh, this week something cool happened in terms of uh, your generosity that created this. In August, we had a, a backpack drive where we found, from, found out from local schools that there were kids that for whatever reason, school supplies were going to be a bit of a challenge. And so we had this master list, I think it was like 150 plus backpacks, and you guys made it happen. And this week we got some notes from those school districts just saying thank you. You can see those on the Facebook page, you can check those out there, but we wanted to let you know about that because things like uh, the backpacks, things like offering, your generosity really makes a difference and we are very thankful for that. So with that, I'm going to invite the host team to come forward and take up our offering at this time. guys remember Jesus is my homeboy t-shirts and trucker hats you know what I'm talking about these uh from the early 2000s this few celebrities got uh, these these t-shirts started wearing them they're like they're like popular for like five minutes but it was like the rage there for a little while these Jesus is my homeboy t-shirts and trucker hats now uh, it's kind of an interesting cult, you know, cultural phenomenon that, that came out from that. But this is a safe place, and this is a place where you will not feel shame or ridicule. I can guarantee you that. But how many of you own or owned a Jesus is my homeboy article of clothing? Hat, t-shirt, something? No. There's, there's a couple. There we go. There's pointing. There's pointing. Hannah Samples, I think, who serves our middle school students. 
in my ministry is awesome at that, but it also happens uh, to have a uh, Jesus is my homeboy shirt. So I appreciate Hannah being, being uh, called out there by her friend. There's why there's no shame, because they're friends. Um, but the rest of you, or many of you, there's probably some liars out here who didn't want to fess up to that. But that's okay. You're in church. Um, but that, that's the kind of interesting thing. This Jesus is my homeboy shirt. It was just, it was so like, it's just incredible that that, was, that became a thing. And it kind of gets me thinking how 2,000 years after the fact, Jesus is still culturally and popularly relevant. That we know a lot about Jesus for someone who lived 2,000 years ago. We know a lot about Jesus for someone who lived in kind of the armpit of the Roman Empire. Who lived kind of in this backwoods kind of area, kind of disconnected from larger society. We, we know a lot about Jesus for the fact that he was a blue-collar guy. That he was a, a carpenter, that he worked with his hands and built things. That he, he had a trade, but he wasn't exactly a leader in his community. We know a lot about Jesus for somebody who, once he became a leader and kind of embraced this role of rabbi and teacher, it really only lasted for three years. And we know a lot about Jesus for a guy who, who kind of rallied around him 12 people in kind of this inner circle, but then he was constantly kind of pushing the crowds and the masses away. He would leave them and kind of go to get away. So for someone who did all of that, we know a lot about him. And we even know a lot about Jesus compared to maybe some Roman emperors like Julius Caesar. These emperors who would have kind of a, a propaganda machine that would get the word out about them. That they were very intentional about spreading the word, sometimes about spreading this word about the emperor being divine, about having some sort of, 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 of godlike powers and qualities. That they had this, they would have, they would hire historians to write great works about them and their lives. And while you can probably still go and find those, read those things, culturally and collectively, we know more about Jesus than really any other historical figure from that time. But why? I think it comes back to the fact that there were eyewitnesses. There were eyewitnesses to the incredible things of Jesus, the incredible things that surround his life, his death, and his resurrection. We talked about this last week, but what does an eyewitness do? They, they share this message. They share this with other people. They share it in a way that, that kind of makes an impact because it's impacted them. And these eyewitnesses that were telling these stories, when other people heard these stories, they could fact check it. They could run it by someone else who was there, someone else who was in the area who heard or saw because they were all still living. That this was an event that could be corroborated in many ways. This is an event that people could believe in because there were eyewitnesses. And so you have these people who are not just testifying to an event, but with their lives being radically changed, something is going on here. You know, 2,000 years ago, there was another important man, this, this doctor, this historian, this man who understood details and could look ahead and realize that he needed to collect these stories. This guy by the name of Luke. Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke, but kind of part two of his, his writing was Acts, the Acts of the Apostles that we'll be reading about today and started in last week. He kind of, he kind of looked at it as one big thing. We've separated it. But, but for Luke, this guy, he started collecting these stories, started interviewing people. And getting these things together and putting it in a coherent form so that we would have this eyewitness testimony today. And so that's what Luke does. That's what Luke does. He takes these eyewitness accounts. And we're in this second week of this series called Big Church. And we said this last week, but let me say it again. This is not about numbers. 
This is not about us growing to a certain size. It's not that we're obsessed with becoming a certain size church, a large church. This isn't about small churches versus large churches. This isn't about contemporary worship versus traditional. This isn't about whether or not the preacher wears jeans or a tie. This isn't about bagels and coffee. This isn't about campuses. This isn't about congregation size. This is about the big church. And the big church that has this big message, this message of hope, a message of hope that's really the only hope for the world. That the only hope for the world is that God puts things back together through the work of Jesus Christ. This big message that says that the message is that Jesus, the risen Christ, he, the Son of the living God, He came, He died, He resurrected, and He ascended, leaving His closest followers with this gift of the Holy Spirit. That Jesus, not not Christ as in his last name, but this title of Messiah, of the one they've been waiting for, the one who would make sense of the messy world, the one who would put things back to right, that would make it possible for us to connect with God once again, to have that relationship there. That is what this is all about. That is what changes everything. And through this big message, through this big idea of Jesus, what comes out of it is this movement. That church is a movement. It's a movement then in its first, first creation. It's a movement now. For those living in Acts chapter 1, the news of Jesus, His death, His resurrection, wasn't simply a teaching they heard about in Sunday school or at church or from parents or from pastors. This was something that they lived. This is something that they saw. Many were eyewitnesses to it. They saw Jesus die on the cross. They ate and talked and, and saw Jesus after He died, after He walked out of the burial cave and and were there with him. They saw the scars and the holes in his wrists and his feet and on his side. But, but he was living. He was breathing. He was talking to him. He was eating. Jesus was alive. They saw all this. And so they were prepared to go and share this. If you read in Acts chapter 2, you'll see that Peter, Peter being kind of the spokesman, the leader of the twelve, the leader of the early church, he has this opportunity where all of a sudden this incredible thing happens at Pentecost. The Spirit shows up in a, in a very powerful way. And he has an opportunity to preach this message, to preach and share this message. And at the end of this message about returning to Jesus, embracing Jesus as the only way to God, as as embracing forgiveness and grace from that, 3,000 people get baptized. Imagine just the line going out the door and, and having to do baptisms well into the night, into the next day, and the day after that as people kept showing up to get baptized. That people embraced this message. And there were no buildings. There were no campuses, there were no youth groups, at least not yet. So this movement of eyewitnesses, this movement of people moved by the power of the Holy Spirit, motivated by this big message, take this message to the world. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus says this, he says, he says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So you'll be, you'll be my witnesses here in your hometown, in the state and the region that kind of surround it, those places that maybe you've visited a couple times, but also to the ends of the earth. These guys who probably haven't walked more than a 50-mile radius from their home are now being told that the known world, no, the entire world, will be where they take this message. These guys who never even dreamed of a place like this are told they're going to take this big message out. And they're going to take it outward, just as Jesus had predicted. But something happened over time. Something happened over time, and the church that started as a movement got buildings. These buildings became systems and structures and hierarchies. So then we had clergy and, and leaders who were paid and it was kind of contracting the work of God out. The church got organized. What started as a movement around a message within a few hundred years 
became so about many other less important things. In many cases, people with wrong priorities took control. And they used this control for manipulation. They used this control to, to kind of get what they wanted to use people. Things got all out of sorts. In a matter of a few hundred years, what began as a movement, a very outward-focused movement, a movement all about the spreading this big message, becomes very inwardly focused. becomes very much about survival of the system. Survival of what's been established. Now, we live in this tension today. We live in this tension where systems and structures and buildings are helpful. They are tools that allow us to advance the kingdom. That yes, maybe you would say that we just need to be very organic and just get together. We don't need to meet in a building. That's fine, but let's be honest, we probably wouldn't be as effective as we are with some of those tools. So what I'm saying is not to just trash all those tools, but to realize what they are and that live in this tension of we have this incredible message that creates a movement, but it's really easy for a movement to get bogged down. It's really easy for a movement to forget that they're supposed to be outwardly focused. And you probably have stories about how the church misses this. You probably have stories from your life, from your family, about how the church went from an outwardly focused uh, you know, body, organism, thing, and became inwardly focused. And I think this plays out sometimes in how we treat kind of first-time guests. Uh, I was in high school, and I was going to church with my girlfriend at the time. And it, it wasn't my wife. Someone asked me that. It wasn't my wife. So I had another girlfriend. And uh, uh, it was like the only girlfriend. I wasn't that kind of guy. Don't get, any, don't get the idea. Um, but so I go to this church, and it's a very different church than what I'm used to. It's like, you know, I'm used to one-hour church, and you go home for lunch, right? And this is like, you know, you show up at 8, you break for lunch, and then you finish like in the afternoon church. So I show up at this church, not really knowing what to expect, but, you know, I'm dating this girl. I want to impress uh, her parents, and so I'm there at this church ready to go. And, and I remember kind of zoning out, as you're wont to do in church sometimes. And uh, I zoned out. Now, I was sitting like halfway back, but like dead center. And I was sitting halfway back about dead center. And all of a sudden, I hear, it like clicks in your brain. Maybe you're in class, and the teacher calls you, and you have no idea what's going on. It was, like, it was one of those moments, but hundreds of people in the room. And this, this pastor up here saying, young man, yes, yes, young man, you, stand up. So I stand up. He says, he says, oh, I see you're with, you know, this family, you know, first time or all this. Yeah, well, introduce yourself, young man. Well, my name's Josh Tandy, and, you know, I'm here and here with the, these folks. And, oh, that's great. And, and young man, what is, let's, let's welcome you. So yeah, everybody turn around. Everybody's looking at me, and everybody's clapping for me. It was just, it was ridiculous. But then, but then it gets, it gets even worse. It gets even worse because then they send the ushers after me, like the church bouncers, right? So the church bouncers come over, and they come over, they, they slide down the row of the pews, like, excuse me, excuse, you, know, you know, and they get to me, and they hand me the connection card, right? Their communication card for me to fill out. So I sit there, and I take it, and I, you know, thanks, but they don't go anywhere. They're, they're waiting on me to fill it out because they're going to take it. So I, oh, I, so I grab a pen, I fill it out, and hand it to them. And even after the service, like, I'm getting hounded by people and all this. Like, I couldn't wait to get out of that place. Well, later in college, I had a similar experience, and I was maybe a little bit more self-confident, more like, prepared for a certain kind of event. Uh, I think my roommate who I was going to church with had warned me, like, hey, you're new. They're probably going to call you out once you introduce, you introduce yourself. So, okay, that's fine. I can do that. I can talk, you know. And so we go, and it's like a midweek service. And sure enough, he, he has me stand up and introduce myself. And we go back and forth, and they all welcome me. It's all great. But it got me thinking as I was preparing this message, what if that is like your own personal version of hell. Like your own personal version of hell is this being asked to stand up in a room full of people, 
to be everyone looking at you, for you to talk in front of these people. If, if there is a definition of an inwardly focused church act, it's that. Because the, in that moment, that person who's, who's on the outside thinking about coming in, they want nothing to do with this. Now, now here's the truth, here's the reality. You guys have stories like that. And the sad part is, is you have stories that are not only uncomfortable and awkward, but they're painful. But you guys have stories that would probably make me you know, feel bad, make you feel shame, not only for, for you, but also for the church that you were involved with. It would hurt. You know, maybe for you, you're growing up and your parents got divorced. And the church didn't know how to deal with this and it hurt and you left. Maybe for you, you were in a church and there was some sort of fight. There was some sort of argument about a big thing or a little thing or something in between. But this argument led to the point where all of a sudden that one church becomes two, but not in a good way. There's a split. And all of a sudden your church no longer exists. Or maybe for you, it was just reaching this point where you saw that church had no more impact on your life. It it didn't make sense anymore. And so you left. Or maybe you got tired of seeing people on Monday morning who weren't with you at church on Sunday who were more, more decent, that were more loving, more caring people, that you just got tired of it and you walked out. Maybe you're back here today giving it one more shot. Because we all have these stories about how the church becomes inwardly focused, loses sight of that big message, and really, really kind of screws things up. And it's hard for us to read in Acts chapter 1. It's hard for us to think back to when this was all new to us and it made sense and there was clarity and there was excitement and, and joy about it. It's hard for us to read here in Acts chapter Acts chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4 as we're going to look at today and realize that, man, in those moments, we can just get back to that. Like, I don't know what happened. I don't know how we got here, but we've, we've lost our way and we've got to get back to this. You know, we, we wonder, what was it like? What was the church like before there were buildings, before there were, there were instruments to argue about and organs and subwoofers and arguments about how you should take communion and bagels and coffee and shirts and ties and pews and chairs and all these, all these things that we can kind of get caught up in, these things that become a distraction. What was it like for us, what was it like for them to live out this big message, to be a part of this big church, this, this capital C church, the one global church, to be part of it in a way where they were really willing to give their lives for this. Not figuratively, but literally. As you read in Acts, you'll see where suddenly it becomes illegal to become a Christian. And all of a sudden, people that you're reading about end up in jail. And there's angry mobs coming after them. And people are dying very public, very gruesome deaths. That these people, these people who had everything stacked against them, that were on the run all the time, maybe even living in fear, still carried this message forward. I think it's because they understood the importance of the big message. You know, one of the things I love about Genesis and my time here and looking back at, it, at its story is that in the nine years or so that it's existed, it began as a group of people who were committed to this idea of helping people find their way back to God. It didn't begin as a church that was committed to a worship style. It didn't begin as a church that was committed to serving coffee. It didn't begin as committed to 30-minute sermons or whatever that is. It was committed to helping people find their way back to reestablishing that connection with God. And you have demonstrated this over and over again. It's not all about money, but we can, we can understand a lot by looking at money. We had the next campaign that, if you don't know, on the other side of this wall is all these kids and, and student space that got finished off. That didn't used to exist. 
And so right in the middle of the worst financial crisis since the 30s, since World War II, we decide to start this big campaign where we're asking people to give money. And not just give money like on a weekly offering, but to give beyond, above and beyond what they normally give. And over two years, we raised about a quarter million dollars. For that, for Carmel Campus, but here's the kicker. Here's the thing about your generosity that's, that blows my mind, is that during that time, on average, our giving total went up. The normal giving to the general budget, not counting next, it went up and increased in the middle of the worst financial crisis, in the middle of the fact that we could probably take a poll and we all know someone who lost a job and had, had, to, had to face a lot of financial hardship. In the middle of that, giving went up. I, I'm, I can see this play out in your passion for, for people when we celebrate baptisms and you guys go crazy and you guys go nuts because you realize that someone's life is changing. You see it when people sign up to serve and sign up to do things that they'd never done before. And really, you see it on a Sunday morning and you see it throughout the week. I love that we are having an impact on this community for Christ and that God is the one doing the work. But I caution you in this. Let me caution you in this. We can so easily go from what we're doing now, which is, which is good. There's good things happening. We're not perfect, but there's good things happening. We can so easily go from that to something totally different. We can easily go from being relatively outwardly focused to being focused on the inside. We can suddenly start having these, these battles over, over we're not going to move, we're not going to budge on this or that. That's, that's core to who we are, and we're not going to do that, even though that might bring someone else in. It would be so easy for us to become self-centered as a church. It'd be so easy for us to die on a bunch of hills that really don't matter. It'd be very easy for us to get in the way of what God is doing. You know, maybe, maybe for you it's the music. You, you come here and you love the music. Well, guess what? I'm betting in 10 years the music's going to look a lot different. And I bet in 10 years you're going to have a moment where you think to yourself, I don't like the music. I wish we did it like we used to. And you're going to have to ask yourself this hard question, am I coming to church for music or am I coming to church for worship? What is it that's most important? Because those times, that's when we turn inward. That's when we forget that we're supposed to be about a movement. And so what we're going to do today, as we talk about avoiding being a self-centered church, we're going to talk about what it looks like if we become self-centered. And I think an easy way for us to examine this issue and ask that question of ourselves is to look at how we pray. Because I think if we are self-centered in our prayer lives, we will quickly become self-centered as a church. And so let's, let's, let's look at this a little bit. I want to challenge you in how you pray. Because how you pray says a lot about your faith and, and it says a lot about how God is stretching you and working uh, in your heart. And because you are the church, how you pray ultimately, ultimately influences and makes who we are as a church. So open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 4, if you've got your Bibles. We'll get there in a bit. It'll be on the screen when it is. But in Acts chapter 4 and the, and the stories leading up to it, we see this incredible story of the church as a movement. And before we look at that prayer, let's talk, before we look at that, that passage, let's talk about prayer for a second. Let me ask you this. What do you pray about? If you were looking at the last month, last six months, last year, and you were able to chart out all your prayers, what would be some of the most common things that you pray for. If for me, maybe yours would be something like this. Or maybe yours would be, be something similar, that you would always pray for food. Apparently food needs prayed for a lot. You'd pray that, that you would have a safe trip. You would pray a, a prayer of thanksgiving for the day. You would pray that, that someone would get well. You know, it's very predictable after a while, our prayers. 
Our prayers become very, very me-focused. It becomes very much about me. Now, I'm guilty of this. I'm not telling you how guilty you are. I'm telling you how guilty I am. And it's, and it's been going on in my life for a long time. I remember I was probably five or six. I was laying in bed before I fell asleep, and I was praying my nightly prayers, because that's what good little boys do, right? So I'm praying my nightly prayers. And outside my bedroom door, I hear my mom trying to stifle a laugh. She's trying to keep herself from laughing, from giggling. So I finish my prayers, and mom walks in, and mom's like, Josh, what, what were you praying about? And I don't know exactly, I don't remember what it was, but I'm sure I was probably praying for a, a baseball game I had coming up, and, or I was praying for some friends maybe, or family, or praying for you know, whatever a six-year-old prays for. She says, oh, that's great, that's great, but, but what else were you praying for? I said, oh, oh I, was, I was praying what I, about what I want for Christmas. What I want for Christmas. Oh, okay. Yes. Okay, well, well, who were you praying to when you did that? Were you praying to God? Oh, no, no, no. I was praying to Santa Claus because he's, he brings the Christmas presents. And so in that moment, very self-centered me, I'm praying to Santa for my Christmas presents. You know, sometimes our prayers are very much me-centered. Sometimes our prayers are very much focused on the repetition, on what we do over and over and over again. We have, a, we have kind of a system. We have things we do every time we pray. And so one time several years ago, Heidi and I were both on a treadmill, separate treadmills, but next to each other. And we're running and we're doing this workout and stuff. And it's kind of a long run. And I remember I was listening to music in my headphones and I think I was watching TV. But out of my peripheral on my left, I see the shape of my wife, her body just drop. Okay. And so I made my first mistake in that I kept running. But I kept running. And I look over and Heidi has done one of those things where she starts to fall. Like leg kicks back, she grabs the thing. And then she falls down. She's laying in between the two treadmills now. I'm still running at this point. Again, that was a mistake. But I'm still running, and I look down, and I'm like, Heidi, what, what's wrong? And she's laughing. She's laughing at this point. She's, she's laughing hysterically. Clearly, she's okay. She's not hurt. And I said, what, what are you doing? What's going on? She says, I was praying with my eyes closed. You don't have to pray with your eyes closed. In fact, if you're praying and operating heavy machinery, I would advise against closing your eyes. Or if you find yourself on a treadmill, it's a negative thing. But our prayers become very mechanical. We do the same things and become very repetitious. We, you know, we fold our hands, we close our eyes. We do that over and over again. Uh, but what do we typically pray for? We, we pray for the same things. We pray for the safe trip. I always find the safe trip prayer kind of interesting. Because is it, is it like you're riding your bike around 465? Like, then pray for a safe trip. But otherwise, buckle up, don't be an idiot, and, and follow the speed limit. Like, you'll probably have a safe trip. You can pray for that, but whatever. Maybe you pray for the last-minute help on a test. You know, okay, all right, we, we shouldn't have studied, but okay. Uh, we, ask, we ask God to help us make some more money, you know. What, now, hear me on this. I'm not telling you you shouldn't pray for yourself. I'm not telling you that those prayers are wrong or horrible. You pray what's in your heart, and God honors that. But I feel like a lot of our prayers are all about us. And so if you took the last six months of your prayer life, and everything came true, that God granted every prayer request you had in the last six months, who would benefit? It'd be you be me, we would benefit because the majority of our prayers are self-centered. The majority of our prayers are focused on ourselves. I'm not saying you should quit praying. I'm not, I, we need God's help. We need to be connecting with God through prayer. But all I'm saying is that our prayers become so me-focused, it won't take very long before we become a self-centered Christian and therefore become a self-centered church. And we would miss the big message. Now, I know you don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. I believe that you and all of Genesis Church are here to make a greater difference in this community, in this world, for God and His kingdom.
His work is only beginning. We've seen some incredible things, but we're confident that God is still moving, is still active, and is going to blow our minds over and over again. And if we keep our eyes focused on Jesus, and if you allow God to work through you, wherever you are, whatever your circumstances or context might be, there's no limiting what God might do. There's nothing that could hold him back. And so today, I'm going to challenge you on the way that you pray. So last week, we saw in Acts chapter 2, how 3,000 people show up. People joined the church in that one day. It was a big opening day. And after a few days, Peter and John, kind of some of the leaders of this, this group, are going to the temple. They're going to the temple to pray. They're going to the temple because that's what you do. They're going to the temple because there's a place where they gather. But on the way to the temple, they pass this man, this beggar. This beggar who can't walk. And he's sitting on, the, on kind of the corner, kind of at a main intersection. And he's sitting there, and like he's done all his life, because he's never been able to walk, he's calling out to people asking for money. And so this man sees Peter and John walking up, and like he always does with everybody, he says, says, Sirs, do you have any money to give to me? And Peter and John honestly tell him, No, we don't have any money, but what we have, we will give you. And Peter reaches down, takes the man's hand, and says, In the name of Jesus Christ, get up and walk. And wouldn't you know it, in this moment, a miracle happened through Peter. This man gets up and walks. Now, obviously, this is a pretty incredible fact. This is someone people knew. People have seen him lying there just minutes before. Now he's walking. And this man, who can now walk, follows Peter and John into the temple. So you can imagine the commotion. This guy just learned how to walk. He's not going to quietly sneak in and take a seat. No, he's like running, jumping, dancing, like causing a stir, because now he can walk after years of not being able to. And so this man gets in the temple. Imagine this right here in this room. If someone walked in and started causing a stir, and there's this word that begins to spread that, that two people actually healed this guy, and that's the guy who couldn't walk. And before maybe he was, he was on crutches or in a wheelchair, but now he's walking around just fine without any help. All of a sudden, people start to come and kind of, kind of press in around Peter and John, asking them what happened, wanting to hear more of the story. And Peter and John are kind of causing such a commotion that the rabbi up front in the temple basically says, Hey, what's going on back there? And when you know it, that Peter stands up and he preaches a sermon. And he preaches a sermon about Jesus, how Jesus did this incredible thing. And he has this really, really um, kind of friendly audience type deal where he, he really says something that, you know, he knows everyone's going to love in the room because he ends his talk by saying, hey, and you know what, this Jesus, you killed him. You religious leaders, you people were a part of this. And this blood is on your hands. And he walked out. So as you can understand, they loved him there. He just got a really, really awesome crowd there as he, as he closed his message with that. But the church is on the move. Peter leaves and he has 5,000 people that end up, end up coming to Jesus as a result of this sermon in the temple. But guess who doesn't like it? The Jewish leaders, those in charge of the temple, those in charge of really the, the area. See, when the Roman Empire came in, they would come in, they would destroy the army, they would destroy any, any opposition, and then they would tax the living daylights out of people. We're talking like 80 to 90% tax put on people. And then they would, they would come back and say, hey, as long as there's no uprising, as long as people pay their taxes, you local leaders, you can still be in charge. You can still do your customs, whether it be religious or cultural or whatever it might be. You can do that. All we care about is that we get paid and we don't have to send in the army to destroy a big uprising or a revolt. So the Jewish leaders were these people who were left in charge. So any kind of commotion, any kind of challenge, they get very upset about because this is a threat to their power and to their position. And so as a result of the commotion, they have Peter and John arrested. They have Peter, John, and arrested, and they bring these two in front of the Sanhedrin, this high court of people. 
these people who have this power and control, these people who could end Peter and John's life on the spot. Now, if you were one of those followers of Jesus who have kind of emerged through all this, you would hear about this. Peter and John, your leaders, the people who who you are following have been arrested, and now they're in the same spot that Jesus was before he was executed, before he was put on the cross. In Acts chapter 4, verse 5, you see that the temple leaders drag Peter and John out out of the jail and bring them in front of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is like, like this court, like I said. And they go there and they kind of call them out, like, who gave you this authority? Who gave you this power? How can you be saying these things? And wouldn't you know it, that Peter, in this moment, preaches another sermon. He preaches another sermon. And one of the things he says that kind of bugs, bugs us a little bit. It bugs me, if I'm honest, and maybe it bugs you. In Acts chapter 4, verse 12, it'll be on the screen, you can follow along. He starts to kind of close out his sermon and he says this in Acts chapter 4 verse 12 to the Sanhedrin. He says, says, salvation is found in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. He uses this very narrow, very, very, very narrow approach the statement about how people connect with God. It's only through Jesus. It probably got the Sanhedrin fired up. Maybe it bothers you. Maybe that kind of irks you on the inside. This idea that's not very open. It's not very... Um, you know, people people have to come through Jesus. And if I'm honest, like, it is, it is a little narrow. It's a lot narrow, actually. And, and this is the, but this is the truth. And, and let me say this, there will be opposition to that statement. There will be people that come at you and say that you need to be more open-minded, that that's, that's not loving, there's no grace in that. But here's the truth. Jesus makes himself available to everyone. I don't understand how, but he does. Jesus makes himself available to everyone. Everyone has a chance. And, and, and just because people may not accept what you're saying about this doesn't mean that you're wrong. It doesn't make them right. At Genesis, we want to be very clear that we believe this. We line up with this 100%. And so Peter had this courage to speak his heart. He left the Sanhedrin in a really difficult place because he's saying all this, and the, the man who was unable to walk is standing there as well. Acts, uh, or, or Acts chapter 4, verse 13 says that when they saw the courage of Peter and John, and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men. They were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the men, see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. Wouldn't you love people to say that about you? That your life is so much different and has so much love and grace and forgiveness for others. That you're so outwardly focused because you've been with Jesus. You love people to say, I don't agree with everything that they have to say. I don't agree with everything they do. But you cannot deny the fact that they're changed because of this Jesus they keep talking about. Now, we're going we're gonna to talk about some of the ways that we can be bold and live this out next week. So I'd encourage you to come back. But, but for right now, I want to return to this in Acts chapter 4, verse 14. So they can see the man standing there with them and there's nothing they could say. So they let him go. Peter and John are kind of left to kind of get a slap on the wrist. They're let go. The Sanhedrin can't explain how this man was, was healed. So they basically say, look, you can go, but, but don't talk anymore about this. Shut up. We're tired of hearing about this Jesus. We're tired of you going out and causing all these commotions and causing a big stir. You need to stop talking about it. And while you're at it, quit blaming us for this man's death. Okay? It's over. Let's be done with it. So Peter and John leave, and sure enough, wouldn't you know, when they leave, they start preaching again. They, they, they find opportunities. If you skip over to Acts chapter 4, verse 23, you see the scenario where they come back. They come back and they're met with, with the other disciples. And before we read that, let me, let's just try to imagine something for a moment. Let's imagine that we're in this moment. 
that we are there, Peter and John were arrested by the people who killed Jesus, and now they're free and they're back with you. And imagine if we're these American Christians in this moment, what would we be doing here? What would we, what, what would we be praying about here? I think for me, if, I, would, I would talk about some new ground rules, okay? I'd talk about some new ground rules. Okay, Peter and John, you're too important. You can't travel together. So separate cars, separate planes. You know, you can't be seen in the same place. I, I think we need to tone down the message a little bit. I think we need to be a little bit more strategic about where we go and who we associate with. I think we need to focus on this. And as we're praying, I think we need to be praying for some protection. And so maybe we're going to pray for, for, for God to be with us. And we're going to be praying for the, a hedge of protection, which... Just sidebar, I don't know what that means. We pray that a lot. Maybe you've heard people pray that, but like God's biggest like effort to protect us is a shrub. That's kind of ridiculous, right? So, so um, way off topic. Uh, so, so I would be praying those things, very simple things. God, protect us, keep us from harm. And I would even thinking like, hey, we keep talking about Jesus and his forgiveness and his love and how everyone needs to meet Jesus in order to reconnect with God. That seems to be attracting people. We need to kind of thin things out. We need to kind of push away from you. We need to maybe focus just on the core a little bit. So this is what we'll do. We'll, we'll um, I don't know, we'll, we'll talk about money for a few weeks. That, that always drives people away. We'll talk about money for a while, and that, that seems to get people out of here. Um, but, but here is what they did pray. This is what they prayed. Acts, 20, Acts, Acts chapter 4, verse 24. When they heard this, when Peter and John had told them what had happened, They raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? In this prayer, they're praying, and as part of the prayer, they're quoting Old Testament scripture about how life is going to be hard, how there's going to be challenges and the people are going to be coming after, they're going to be persecuted and mistreated. Look ahead to to verse 26. It says, The kings of this earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against His anointed one, against the Messiah, against the Christ, against Jesus. Verse 27 says, Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. They're praying. We're not surprised at any of this. We saw this coming. We can look at Scripture. We see it coming. You predicted hard times. Of course we would be experiencing this. Verse 28, They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now this moment, if your leaders have been, been taken to prison, been released, you're freaking out. Things are chaotic. They're out of control. Maybe we're being followed. We've got we to gotta get out of here. We've got to do something. No, what they pray is this prayer of acknowledging the fact that God is still in control. They, they can say with their prayers that God is still in control. Now, I want you to check out this next part. This next part, I think, is key. It's just key to, to how, we, how we kind of position our prayers. Here's, here's what he says in verse 29. This is, this is what they prayed for. He says, Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Speak your word with great boldness. Stop there for a second. Think about this. So they get arrested for preaching when they're not supposed to preach. Before the Sanhedrin, they preach when they're not supposed to preach. I think these guys got boldness figured out, okay? Boldness for them is not a challenge. Boldness for them is not something they struggle with. But here in this moment, when maybe they would be the most discouraged, the most downtrodden, the most fearful, they pray for more boldness. It's what got them in trouble in the first place, but they, they pray for more boldness. Read it again. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Have you ever in all your life prayed for boldness? 
Have you ever asked God to make you bold? I mean, can we even pray for that anymore? Is that just kind of what pushes people away, what turns them off? But that's what they did. They prayed for this moment, in this moment where they don't really have a play. Like, they don't have a strategy. They're just there, and they're taking whatever opportunity God puts in front of them. They're being bold. Now, there's, there's a key thing here to remember. When they say boldness, they don't say weirdness. Okay? They're not saying that boldness means you have to be insensitive. Boldness doesn't mean you have to be brash and angry and yelling about it. The boldness is not being odd. It's not being rude. It's not being weird. It's very different than that. And so you might initially think of things about bold. Well, well maybe we need to kind of redefine that a little bit. Maybe we need to redefine that, 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 that boldness doesn't have anything to do with, you know, with forwarding on an email that your grandma sent you. For, boldness doesn't have anything really to do with, with reposting that thing on Facebook that you saw and getting 10 likes and make sure this and all that. Uh, boldness has nothing to do with that. What boldness is, is courage. Boldness is, is that these first century Christians who, who prayed for boldness, they don't even think about it. They just pray for boldness. But then they pray this. Verse 30. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. It's one thing to pray for boldness. It's a whole other thing to pray for miracles to be done by your hands to honor God. And so, so see that, but realize there's more to, more to the story here. I want you to see what they're really praying for. They weren't only praying for boldness. They were praying for influence. They were praying for opportunities. They were praying, praying for a chance that when they, with their lives, they would be able to have the power to walk into a situation, to walk into any situation and speak boldly. That they would be able to walk into a situation where they leave people thinking that it's obvious that they have been with Jesus. It's obvious that something's going on in their lives, that they've been changed. It's obvious that they've been freed up and forgiven of things, and therefore... Maybe I want to be a part of that as well. Boldness is courage. Boldness is passion. Boldness is an eagerness and a readiness to take action, to speak up, to act differently, to do something that doesn't seem to quite make sense because your life has been changed by Jesus Christ. That boldness is something that puts the message out. Boldness is what pushes it forward. And so ask yourself this. What if I prayed for boldness? What if I prayed, God, give me boldness. Stretch out your hand and work in my life in such a way that when people see me, they see Jesus. What if you and I prayed that God would stretch out his hand and do a new thing in my family, amongst my friends, in my neighborhood, on my campus, in my dorm, at my work? God, I don't know what to say, but you do. God, I don't know how to act, but you do. So God, give me the courage. Give me the boldness. Allow me to trust that you are in control. See, these Christians didn't want boldness for their own sake. This isn't some marketing ploy. This isn't something to get more people to show up to an event. No, this is them being bold for the sake of God. They wanted boldness and power for the sake of God. They were ready for God to do a great work through their words and through their actions too. So what would happen or what could happen if we started praying for boldness? How would our lives be different? How would this community be different? How would Genesis Church be different? How would it be different if we prayed, God, I'm not afraid to ask this person. I can't imagine what it involves, but God, would you give me that boldness? I'm not a bold person, but God, would you give me an appropriate level of boldness right now? And God, would you stretch out your hand and do a work in and around my life for others and for you?
a lot would change. Things would be different. And I want this for you and I want this for my life. I, I, I realize that there are moments where I've passed an opportunity. Not maybe just to say something, but to do something. Not maybe just to, to do something flam, you know, big and brash, but to do something small that could potentially have a great impact and potentially no one could see. But I didn't. I missed it. And so in this moment, I want to give us all an opportunity to pray a prayer asking God to make us bold. To pray a prayer asking God to give us boldness. Because we believe that that the correct prayer life, an outwardly focused prayer life, will help inform and help create a church that's outwardly focused and focused on others. That maybe we can pray for boldness that's not self-centered. We can pray for boldness that is not, not edifying us and giving us credit and glory, but giving credit and glory to God. So this is what I want to do. Here in a moment, here in a moment, we're all going to stand. And when we stand, we're going to close, we're going to close with a verse. And we're going to close with a verse that, that, that we've just read here, kind of a version of it from verse 30. And if you want boldness in your life, my request, my ask is that you would stand with me as we all do, if you're able, and you would repeat the prayer out loud with me. So I would be saying it and you would be saying it with me to, to share in this moment. Because it's so easy to have something happen here and then walk out these doors and it'd be gone. But for all of us as a community, those who are willing to out loud pray this prayer, to commit to this. Now, I know this might be weird. I know this might be awkward. may not be your thing. It's okay to not say anything. Hear me on that. It's okay not to say anything. But we believe that this prayer that was prayed by the earliest Christians, in this moment where things were happening and things were happening that were fearful and exciting, in that moment they prayed for more boldness. And I believe that we would be well served to pray that as well. So right now, if you're able, would you stand to your feet? And on the screen will be the, will be the verse. If you want this boldness in your life, would you say it with me? God, enable me to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and to perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Amen. I hope, I pray that all of us would realize that our prayer lives impact how we live in ways we don't even begin to understand. That boldness that we'll talk about next week starts in our prayer lives. And so we're going to end here. We're going to end here, but I want to give you some opportunities in terms of what to do with this. If you're here and something has been said that God has used to impact your life and you want to talk to somebody, there will be people down here who love to pray with you. If you're at a place where you've just made some first-time commitments to follow Jesus, that you're here and you realize that my life, I have not been following God. I need to accept Jesus I need to, to, to make him Lord in my life. If that's you, you can come down here to the front. But we have a new thing that for those people that are maybe making first steps, maybe you're new here and you're just trying to get back to it, you don't really know what to start. So we have this, this kind of this bundle of things that we call the Next Steps Kit. And I've got one of these up front, and you can grab one at the Info Hub when you leave. Just tell them you want the Next Steps Kit. They'll know what you're talking about, and they'll hand this to you. There's no obligation. It's just some things that as, as you try to figure out, what do I do with my new belief? What do I do with my new commitment to follow Jesus? Here are some ideas. But wherever you are, whatever's going on in your life, whatever you might find yourself in, my prayer for you, my prayer for me, is that we would find ways to live 
an appropriate level of boldness in our lives that starts with our prayer life. We'll see you next week.